Hola. Um, Morgan? Who is Morgan's buddy? There's Morgan. Hi. <laughs> I saw this big gaping hole. It was kind of an emptiness of Morgan. But this, was a, this is a really good example. I looked for and didn't find. Right? But that's not the same as finding the absence of. So egg all over my face. You know? <laughs> oh, lasso. Well, um, let's go back to a very brief passage. We're going to do the same thing we did this morning. I'll make this a habit for a few days, then we'll see. Uh, just one more passage. This is now, again, a citation by Padmasambhava, one of the great Dzogchen tantras. Give a brief commentary, and we'll go to the practice. So here is his, yeah, his first, his first citation. He will, as you will see, give a number of them. This is from the Tantra of the Three Phases of Liberation by Observation. So, O Lord of Mysteries, listen. The immaculate nature of your conscious awareness, this immaculate emptiness that is ungrounded in the nature of any substance or color is the Buddha-Samatabhadra. So it's interesting how these are one, one layer on top of the other. It says, first of all, the immaculate nature of your unconscious awareness. Conscious awareness is clearly something that's present, right? It's not an absence of something, it's a presence of something. But then, he, but then there's this a positive that is just a comma, and then he says, the immaculate emptiness that is ungrounded in the nature of any substance or color. So he's kind of laying one on top of the other. On the one hand, an immaculate conscious awareness, and laying right on top of that, an immaculate emptiness, but the two are non-dual. They're not separate. They're not two things that are slapped together. So primordially indivisible, non-dual. An immaculate, which means primordially pure, which is both luminous emptiness, conscious awareness, and also emptiness. And thus, this is the Buddha Samantabhadra. So that's it. Do not look for the Buddha outside yourself. There's our mantra for the whole retreat. Uh, the Buddha Samantabhadra goes by different names. This is very often called Buddha Samantabhadra in the Dzogchen school, the old translation schools, and the new translation schools, like Kagyupa, well, all of them really, often referred to as Buddha Vajradhara, right? In the Kalachakra Tantra, the Adi Buddha, primordial Buddha. They're all synonyms, right? They're all synonyms. But now this could very easily seem like, okay, well, here's, here's kind of, here, here's Buddhist God. Here's Buddhist God, you know? Um, and if one wants to call him Buddhist God, I'm not going to debate with it. But what is, what's the real meaning? I mean, if one wants to call it that, that, one could make that meaningful. But then you have to make sure you don't just, how do you say, mix it all together with uh, ideas, theories, views, and so forth from other traditions. But what Buddhist Samantabhadra is, is simply a personification, a, a, an archetypal embodiment, a personification, um, a transcendent archetype of your own pristine awareness. And it's very important to recognize, they keep on saying this, rangi rikpa, rang rik, rang rik, your own pristine awareness. In other words, it's not somebody else's awareness that when you achieve some high mystical state, you'll merge with that being. I have no criticism. Other, other, teach, other traditions teach that. No problem. I am a comparative scholar of, of contemplative studies, but that's not why I came to Phuket, you know. We're here just to practice and have the theory here to support us in our practice. This Buddha Samatabhadra, primordial Buddha, is the tr 
transcendent archetype, the personification, the divine embodiment of your own pristine awareness. Right? And then everything about Samantabhadra is symbolic. Now, one of the lovely aspects of it, I think, is in, to my mind, it's just a beautiful image. Uh, it is sexual, of course, but in just a pristine way. There's nothing vulgar about it, Ab- from my perspective. Just nothing. There's nothing crude, base, or anything like that. This deep blue color, the deep blue color of Samantabhadra, symbolizing pristine awareness, primordial consciousness, right? But then, Samantabhadra very commonly is uh, depicted in union with Samantabhadri. So it's primordial, primordial, well, primordial Buddha S, you know, just female, female form, like Deva and Devi. And something you may not know, but I find it very helpful to know, in terms of dealing with this type of imagery, is the Samantabhadri, the consort, often depicted as white in color, is the personification of Dhammadhatu, the absolute space of phenomena. And they're, they're in primordial union, blissful union. So there we have it. We have awareness, we have emptiness, and we have the bliss that saturates the two, and all three of these have never been separate. Now that's just a beautiful symbolism. Uh, and it evokes symbols like, why do we have poetry? Who needs poetry? Why don't we just speak in good, good fashion prose and narrate the information, you know, pass on the data? Well, because poetry, because of art, because music speaks to another dimension of our existence in ways that sometimes just words or narrative or an email doesn't. And so likewise. And this is known also in terms of, you know, to bring out the cliche, you know, left, left brain, much more analytical, linguistic, and so forth, than the right brain much more imagery, symbolic poetry, and so forth. You can push that. It has some truth to it, and neuroscientists have been rather critical of that because it's so often very much oversimplified. Nevertheless, is there some truth to it in terms of neural activity? Yeah, some degree. We won't, get, you know, we won't push it overboard. But that left-right, that left-right, the left, the left hand of wisdom, the right hand of skillful means, the union of the two, it's really running through all of Buddhism. So as I was reflecting on that, or just kind of thoughts were coming up uh, this afternoon, it occurred to me that within Buddhism, uh, we have this, we have the shamatha, which is the opening of the door to the form realm, to the form realm. And this is most explicit from my very limited reading. It's most explicit in the Pali Canon and the Theravada writings, that this form realm is, in some respects, very archetypal. Archetypal, pretty much, pretty very close to a Jungian sense. It's archetypal. And they're called nimittas. Nimittas. And in court, according to one very, very fine Theravada scholar, he's a Sri Lankan monk, scholar, contemplative, wrote an outstanding book called Buddhist, Theory and Med- in Buddhist Meditation and Theory and Practice, published in Malaysia. I have it. It's one of my cherished books. It's outstanding scholarship. But he, when he's looking at the nimittas, these counterpart signs, the nimitta, the archetype of the earth element, water, fire, air, space, and so forth, uh, he says, and here's his phrasing, these are like the conceptual quintessence of these elements that manifest here in our very familiar world. So when I strike something solid, like, like this, this table, it's very firm, it's very solid. Well, that's a lot of earth element. I strike the cushion, it's less earth element. So this is the phenomenological physics, first-person physics, experiential physics, where if you look at earth, water, fire, air, and space, that pretty much covers it. Five elements will do. You don't need barium and sodium and potassium and magnesium to understand your immediate experience of the world just this way. And that's certainly not putting down chemistry. It's another approach. It's complementary, but they're not in competition with each other. 
So in terms of the form realm, we have this whole realm of these archetypal forms. Sounds, again, rather platonic. Ideas, pure ideas. And what, where it gets very interesting very quickly is that, this is most explicit in the Theravada, but it does come up in the, in the Mayana as well, is that by the power of samadhi, just samadhi, not realization of emptiness, and certainly you don't need realization of rigpa, right? Uh, just by the power of samadhi, if you, if you achieve shamatha, cross the threshold over into the form realm, and you master, you really master these archetypes of earth, water, fire, air, and so on, by you, then you may direct, you may manipulate, you may utilize these archetypes in the form realm, and by so doing, manipulate their effulgences, their displays in the desire realm. Because just basic Buddhism, generic Buddhism, this world that we're living in here is called the desire realm, and it's an effulgence, a display, an emergence from form realm. Form realm. Okay? So you find parallels of that by brilliant mathematicians. I mentioned before, Roger Penrose, that suggests there may be a deeper dimension of reality that's just pure, pure math, pu- just pure math, and what we're experiencing here, like the pop-up, a pop-up, or a, a um, what's it called? Mm. Oh, it's a simple word. Holographic, like a holographic display. You know, out of the two-dimensional springs the three-dimensional. But the two-dimensional is where all the real information is, and what we're getting is the pop-up display, which is all illusory. That's actually not Buddhism. This is kind of like some really brilliant modern mathematicians and so forth, and physicists. So the idea is consonant. I'm not saying it's equivalent, but it's consonant compatible with, uh, lends to dialogue with, strictly Buddhist view, that in the cosmogony, the formation of the universe as we know it, out of the formless realm emerges the form realm, out of the form realm emerges the desire realm, and then when a world system collapses, it goes from the desire realm and folding back into the form realm, and it's a big, big collapse, and it unfolds back into the formless realm. And this is happening, but not one universe. Multiverses all over the place. Multiverses, you know. So that's a, that was all a bit of a tangent. But what I, but now over the last 24 years that I've been seeking to immerse my mind as much as I can in the teachings and the practice of Dzogchen, uh, I'll just make a brief allusion to the Turtgel, and I alluded to this earlier. In the Turtgel, without visualizing anything at all, there's no visualization at all in straight Turtgel practice, you're simply resting, and I'll just say that much. There's more, more to it than that. But then visions of the five Buddhas come up. You know, Vairochana, Amitabha, Ratnasambhava, uh, and so forth. They come up spontaneously you know, with their consorts. And the clear implication is you don't have to be a Buddhist to see this. After all, you, you don't get Buddhist brainwashed and then finally see what you've been told you should see. They say this, they are spontaneous actualizations. And you're really not a fit practitioner of the Tutgel. You're not a suitable vessel unless you've realized Rikpa. So you must be resting from that space. So if, you have, if your mind is resting in the form realm, then you, have the, you may have these archetypes of earth, water, fire, air, and so forth arising. That's fine, right? And see how they manifest in the desire realm. But here, you're not resting in the form realm, not in Dzogchen. You're resting in Rikpa, and out of Rikpa emerge. So it looks to me, I I just find this fascinating. And it's just like, man, I want to stop talking, and I want to stop teaching. I just want to go out and find whether this is all true or not, you know, from my own experience. 
Because that's the cool thing. It's not just a mystical theology that you can believe in and say, oh, isn't it cool? These are all teachings to be put into practice to see for yourself. Otherwise, all the enthusiasm displaying, I wouldn't have any. I'd have none, really. If there's no way to put this to practice, I'd rather grow potatoes. At least, you know, you're doing something that's worthwhile. I like potatoes. It seems that on this deeper dimension, this deeper dimension of primordial consciousness, Dhammadatu, there really is transcendent, transcendent symbolism, transcendent archetypes. And Samadabhadra is right in the center. The most primal, I think, really the most primal. Certainly for all the Buddhas, and say that. So, there it is. The primordial union in bliss, immutable bliss, the union of absolute space of phenomena, and primordial consciousness. And then this tantra continues, if the nature of your conscious awareness were just emptiness and bliss, if that's all there were to it, it would not be flat emptiness. This is just a sheer vacuum, a sheer vacuity. Uh, the term is used rather frequently, always in contrast to dhammadhatu. Dhammadhatu being indivisible from primordial consciousness, a flat emptiness, a sheer, a mirror vacuity, would just be that, just a vacuum, like nothing in it. Well, it's not that. It would, it would, it, so if it were just emptiness and bliss, it would not be a flat emptiness. Well, the bliss would take care of that. Rather, your own conscious awareness, which is unceasingly distinct and clear, is the Buddha Samantabhadra. So there again, he says, your own conscious awareness. Just so we have no, no doubts about this, no qualms, that you're not trying to gain union with some other being that's higher, infinite, divine, and so forth, so there it is. The empty nature of your awareness, which is ungrounded in any substance, and this clear, distinct presence of your own conscious awareness are the empty nature of your awareness and the clear and distinct presence of your conscious awareness are indivisibly present. So this is the Buddha Dharmakaya, mind of the Buddha. Samadabhadra is simply, a, again, an embodiment of Dharmakaya. Your awareness, he keeps on saying this, you are, you are, you are. That's not just English, that's from the Tibetan. Your awareness, which is present as a great aggregate of light, of indivisible clarity and emptiness, is unborn and deathless. So it is the Buddha of immutable light. It may be recognized. I like that ending. It may be recognized. It's kind of like throwing it down. Is like there is a working hypothesis. You can test this. You know. You know. You don't. When I just believe it, like this is coming from a tantra. Oh, it must be true. No, there it is. You, you can recognize it. After all, it's your awareness. So why shouldn't you be able to do that? Let's slip just briefly back to the arhat. Because I think by the sheer force of just sheer logic, unless you... Re- but, but it's just sheer logic. I don't need to repeat what I said the other day. Uh, that if nirvana dies when you do, then it's not deathless. And if the aspiration to nirvana is the aspiration to become a non-entity then that's craving for non-existence. So I think we can really dispense with that. That's a wrong interpretation. And once again, it doesn't matter. It's one of these things, again, where if you had 1,000 Theravada scholars, all with PhD, multiple from Buddhist colleges, and they say, no, you're wrong. I say, no, you're wrong. I don't care how many there are. It's 10,000, 100,000, or a million. If they say, no, this is what the Buddha was really teaching, you should aspire for absolute non-existence because there's no consciousness after the death of an arhat and therefore there's no nothing. I don't care how many people say it. I don't care. And I'm not going to debate them. You're wrong. 
And they don't have to believe me, they don't have to agree, but they're wrong. And I have no interest in talking about it anymore. So let us assume what logic compel compels us, if one is working with, taking seriously this Buddhist framework, that the post-mortem arhat, in some meaningful way, is still immersed in this immutable bliss, all those adjectives. They were positive adjectives, many of them, weren't they? The refuge and so forth, and wondrous and amazing and so forth, that it doesn't just terminate at death. What, what, a, what a cosmic letdown, an anticlimax. Well, it's not. It can't be. But the arhat. What is the nature of the, if, if we follow the logic here, what is the nature of the arhat's awareness? Well, it has to be unborn because it was so clear in the Bali Canon that the conditioned consciousness, that's terminated. So the arhat, the post-mortem arhat's awareness must be unborn. And it's of the nature of immutable bliss. Take all those adjectives. And now you can say the, the, the post-mortem arhat's mind is, and we can go back to that, wondrous, amazing, blissful, serene, peaceful. These are not qualities of a vacuity. Right? Or non-existence. It makes no sense. It's unborn in all of those qualities. It's luminous. It's bright, right? Well, how many of those are there? And that is, is there the Theravada model? And then the Mahayana model? That is, do the Shravakas get kind of the, you know, the lower grade, the Hinayana, unborn, blissful, immutable, consciousness and so forth, whereas the Mayana people following the Tathagagarbha, they get a better one. And the, and the Dzogchenpas, well, we, we get the Dzogchen model. <laughs> you know, is it kind of like, you know, different levels of, a, of an iPhone, you know, there's the, midi, the low and medium and then the really high one, you know, with lots of gigs and really super fast and so forth. Um, I think it's kind of obvious that's silly. If this is pristinely pure, and it's unborn. That's the big one. It's unborn, luminous, blissful, immutable bliss. And moreover, it's realizing nature of ultimate reality. It's realizing nirvana, which is not other than emptiness, which is not other than dhammadhatu. So would it not follow that the arhat is realizing emptiness with rikpa? If not rikpa, what else? Another unborn, immutably blissful, etc., etc., etc. Another one? that Hinayana people get? It, that really doesn't make any sense to me. So I mentioned before that there, in terms of primordial consciousness, there's the primordial consciousness that knows reality as it is. That's knowing Dharmadhatu. Right? But the other aspect of a Buddha's mind is knowing the full range of phenomena. The primordial consciousness knows the full range of, full range of phenomena. The Arhat who is completely, absolutely disengaged from samsara. The postmortem arhat, I think there's a, a, a total consensus on this point, has no awareness whatsoever of anything outside of nirvana. Galaxies collapsing, universes crunching, expanding, form realm coming out of formless realm and so forth and collapsing, nada. Transcendent, timeless, totally, totally beyond para 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 you know, para gate, para samgate totally gone, and therefore totally, sorry, useless for all of us here. I mean, they're not even aware that we're here. You know, so, frankly, totally useless. But the Buddha's mind, 
has that other aspect to it. The primordial consciousness of being aware of the full range of phenomena. And that's pervading all of space and time. But again, not the God's eye view as one unitary perspective looking out on one unitary universe, because there's just no indication of that anywhere in Buddhism. But rather than how is the Buddha aware of all the phenomena? By way of the, by way of the, by, by way of the awarenesses of all sentient beings that populate the universe. You are the Buddha's spy. You know? The Buddha wanted to know what's the world look like from Emerson's perspective. You, except that there was no invasion. There was no possession. You didn't get possessed by somebody. And why? Already there. And that's what you need to discover. The Buddha was already there and is already viewing from Buddha's perspective. So it looks like we have a multiple personality disorder. The personality that we're aware of, oh, I'm a sentient being. My shamatha practice is not going so well. I had a really bad day. I'm not sleeping so well. Oh, uh, I had some tummy problem. Oh, I'm feeling really low energy. Oh, that one. And then the other one. Emma Ho. <laughs> just like Emma Ho. Just immutable bliss. And what's that chatter up there? I don't know, but Emma Ho down here. <laughs> so we got some multiple deals going on here, right? So whoever's down there, I think we'd really like to be down living down there. You know, the Emma Ho land. Emma Ho is Sanskrit for amazing. So there it is. So that's what it looked like to me. I've never heard any Lama say this. But I, and I would be willing to be persuaded otherwise. I, don't have that, I have an absolute conviction that Nirvana is not annihilation. I'd be total. That's, I'm not going to debate that one. But just by logic and probing into this, I don't see any alternative to this one. That... What other consciousness could it be that the post-mortem arhat is realizing nirvana with if it's not rikpa? Something less, something other? When it's un- the real catch is it's unborn, it's unborn, it's blissful, and it realizes reality as it is. It is a primordial consciousness that's realizing reality as it is. right? But what's the difference between an arhat, a post-mortem arhat, and a post-mortem Buddha? Oh, Buddha has, Buddha has the breath. And that breath which is the luminosity. You remember? The essential nature is emptiness. The manifest nature is luminous. And these are pervaded by, or manifesting as, all-pervasive compassion. That's not there for the arhat. One out of three. The knowing reality as is? Yeah. You're an arhat, your mind is completely free of mental afflictions, but not free of cognitive afflictions. Excuse me, cognitive obscurations. avarana. Now, this is clearly Mahayana talk, but not free of Nye Avadana. And that's why it said after the Arhat, the postmortem Arhat, has dwelled for some timeless period in this timeless dimension of reality, that symbolically, and how about some poetry here, a ray of light is emitted from the, from, the, from the heart of the Buddha, striking, catalyzing the mind of the Arhat with a word, with a little message, you know, mind to mind transmission, you're not finished yet. And then the Arhat has to take birth again. And then do the unfinished work. Because there's, in, in the Mahayana view, the Dzogchen view, there's only one final destination. Nobody comes to be just an Arhat and then stops for eternity. One way or another, 
the Buddha's hook. Hook. says, more to be done. And then you come back. Not, by, not propelled by karma and klesha. You don't get karma and klesha back. The, the Buddha doesn't send kudis to you. Well, take that, you know. Like, it does, that doesn't happen. You come back, but then you come back very anomalously. You're coming back because there's more to be done. So something like that, maybe. So a number of you are, have, you know, are disciples, really great lamas. And uh, you might ask them if there's some alternative explanation for that. Because I've never heard any Mahayana or Dzogchenpa say that a dead arhat realizes Rikpa. I never heard anybody say that. So it's, it's me alone. It kind of makes me you know, naked in the wind, right? Um, but if it's not, then with what? With what? So, so now we just go to the practice. Uh, I wanted to, it will be a silent practice. The methods are simple. But I wanted to leave you just with some seeds. Choice terms that come up all over the place. Because I, I have received quite a few of the guided meditations of pointing out. And, and, and Gautrin Butchers taught me only practice texts. He never took me up to, uh, into any of the scholarly texts. And there are many of them, and they're brilliant, but that's not what he took me to. And so, and I just haven't been motivated to go off and become a Dzogchen scholar. Uh, so that's my limitation. But what comes up in the meditation manuals, there are a few words that just crop up everywhere. So let's, I think it'd be good to bear them in mind. When you're resting in your practice, this is tekchut now, not chutkal. We're not doing trikkal in this, in this retreat, but the tekchut, the cutting through to original purity. Kata, 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 tekchut. Ka means original, ta means pure. Ka is in the first letter of the alphabet, yeah? First, first letter of the alphabet, therefore original. Ka, ta, kata, tekchut. First one is chatel or chamet, either one. Free of activity. Free of activity. When you're doing this practice, which is very core to our eight weeks here, this practice of seeking to simply cut through to rikpa, rest in rikpa, uh, when you're doing the practice correctly, and even that, the phrasing is funny, but when, you're, when you are doing the practice, it's still funny because you're not doing anything. But what can I say? Uh, it's chadel, you're not doing anything. Chadel, you're not doing anything. You're free of activity, free of doing, not doing. Right? Now, there's something really profound about that. And it's also very simple. And that is for where we're coming. When we're approaching our meditation cushion, I imagine most, if not all of us, are approaching it as a sentient being, sitting down and saying, wow, I'd really like to realize Rikpa. Where's my meditation cushion? Okay, I think I'm going to start now. Okay, let's do it. We're coming to the meditation cushion as a sentient being. Wishing to realize something we haven't re- realized and to become something we aren't yet. Well, as long as you're holding that attitude, you're not even starting. You have to release it. And so what is being deactivated here is any activation of yourself as a sentient being, even nominally, even conventionally or relatively, you completely deactivate any sense of yourself as being a sentient being in any way at all, and you don't do anything with the attitude that I'm a sentient being. You turn it off. You turn it off. It's not to say that in some meaningful sense you're still a sentient being. 
not that. It's not magic, magic, hocus pocus, or a slate of hand. It's just that, and I give the analogy, it's, so, it's such a perfect analogy. No wonder dream yoga comes right after this. And that is within a dream, as long as you have the attitude that I'm the person in the dream, and you have any longings from the perspective of the person in the dream, oh, I hope one day I will awaken, then you're not lucid. And as long as you hold that notion, I'm, and you're not even thinking, I'm the, I'm the person in a dream, you're thinking, I'm this person. Because you don't know it's a dream. right? You're just thinking, this is me. Now, what can I do to, to awaken? I've heard about awakening. What can I do? I think I need to do something. Maybe practice shamatha and, and vipassana and stage regeneration and completion. What can I do? And, oh, I, need, I think I need to pretend that I'm a Buddha. Yeah, that's what I need to do. I need to imagine that I'm a Buddha. You know, As long as you're operating out of that attitude, that this is who you are, even nominally, and thinking, now what do I do about that? What do I do about that? You're not practicing Dzogchen. You're practicing what's called the causal vehicle. You're asking, what can I do to bring about the effect, the fruition of what I really want? Right? But Dzogchen, within the context of Adriana, but Nokchen, Dzogchen, naked, pure, unadorned, unelaborated, is taking the fruition as the path. And it's saying, right now, by an act of will, I'm going to release every sense, every, just that, every sense of being a sentient being, and I will release every activity that's aroused by the sense of being a sentient being. You're totally deactivating yourself as a sentient being. And what's left when you deactivate yourself as a sentient being? Rikpa. That's all that's left. The substrate consciousness is still the substrate consciousness of a sentient being. And when you're resting in it, having achieved shamatha, you really like it, you want to keep it. I like the luminosity, I like bliss, I don't want to get out, I really like it here, this is really peaceful. Fine. You're a really primal sentient being. Knock yourself out. But it's not the Dzogchen perspective. Because you're still there in the context of being a sentient being. So that's the first thing. Chadel. Being free of activity. You're totally deactivating the sense of being a sentient being and any, stri- any activity as a sentient being. Because right? when you're lucid, just think of the analogy. When you're lucid, when you're lucid, you can do all kinds of things. You can fly through the sky, walk through walls, multiply loaves, walk on water, turn into a turtle. Anything you like. You can do all kinds of things. There's no limit to it. But you're not doing any of those things from the perspective of being the person in the dream. If you are, then you're non-lucid. You know you're not the person in the dream. That's why you can turn into a turtle. Or into Samantabhadra. Or anything you like. Because you know you're not any, of, any one of them. Therefore, you can manifest into any of them. If you're an actor, a very well, highly trained actor who can play any role from slapstick commentary to drama to you know, action, adventure, and so forth, since you know that you're not Luke Skywalker and you also know that you're not you know, anything else in the movie, then you can play any role you like. But if you suddenly think you're Luke Skywalker, then you can't play any other role. Because you're stuck. But now you're delusional. Because I'm sorry, but you're not Luke Skywalker. So that's a jadel, jame, free of activity. And then coming out of that 
Tsul is effort. No effort. Again, if you're, if you're releasing into the identity of being a Buddha, all of the Buddha's activities are effortless and spontaneous. General Mahayana statement. All the Buddha's activities, unpremeditated, spontaneous, and effortless. So if you're exerting any effort, you've just affirmed yourself as a not-Buddha. Which means you've locked yourself right back into the cage of being a sentient being. Or strive diligently, strive diligently. You know, That's fine if you're a sentient being. But as long as you're striving diligently to achieve something you haven't, to become something you're not, then you're not lucid. You're practicing non-lucidity. The second one is no striving at all. A third one is and Jema means to fix, to modify, to alter, to configure, to, to improve, like that. Well, it's Jema Don't do any of that. Don't try to fix anything. If you're resting in Buddha mind, there's no aspect of your being, being that needs to be fixed. Nothing, body, speech, mind, nothing needs to be fixed. You're a Buddha. So if you're operating out of the sense, oh, I need to fix that, then you've just slipped right back into sentient being mode. And from that mode, there's everything to fix. From Buddha mode, there's nothing to fix. And the whole idea here is you're taking really literally the fruition as the path and you're practicing, you're, you're practicing uh, from the perspective of being a Buddha in which there's nothing to fix. Myriad things to do for the sake of other sentient beings, nothing to do for yourself. And then the final one, so these are all core, really core. And it's not just theory. This is exactly what you, it will be helpful to bear in mind. Uh, and the final one is Pangla Meba. Pangla Meba. And the Pangla is to reject, to abandon, to dismiss, to avoid, get rid of. In terms of your own being, if you're Buddha, there's nothing to reject at all, right? Nothing to reject. But there's also, and so nothing to reject. So if you're practicing Dzogchen, then whatever comes up in the mind, there's nothing to reject. If you're really practicing from the perspective of Rikpa, there's nothing to reject from your side. But also, lang lang is to latch onto. So, for example, bliss comes up. Oh, I wanted that. I wanted that. Oh, that's peaceful. Oh, I wanted that too. Non-conceptuality. Oh, non I've been wanting that for a long time. I'll take that, but some of that too. You know. That will keep you in the substrate forever. Until you run out of gas, and then, then you lost your shamatha. And then you're right back in the vast ocean of samsara. That's exactly what differentiates the substrate consciousness from Rikpa. Is that clinging, that preference, that craving, that latching onto, that grasping. I want this. I want this. You know. So it's pangla mepa. You're not trying to reject anything. You're not embracing, taking on, latching onto anything. There's nothing for you to latch onto. Nothing you want. Nothing to get rid of. Nothing that you want not or you diswant, unwant, don't want. So there it is. That's the core instruction. So when you're resting there, you know the instructions are very simple. Simple. They don't get complicated. They are simple. And you may, you may find another teacher who gives pointing out and then suddenly a tremendous breakthrough. It could happen. But the words probably won't be very different. Or it may be a slap in the face with a sandal. I haven't tried that. I think I'd get sued. 
But um, the approach is essentially the same. But when you're practicing on your own then, there does need to be some kind of metacognitive awareness, introspective awareness, that you, when you find, oh, now I'm doing something, fine, go back to shamatha. There's something to do there, but it's not Dzogchen. Or I say, I'm, I'm striving, I want to achieve. When's Rikpa coming? Is it coming? I've only got 15 minutes. Is it coming? <laughs> I only have five weeks and two days left. Oh, crap, we're running out of time here. Striving, hoping, fearing that when eight weeks has gone by, still no rikpa. And you'll go home and people will say, you went on a Dzogchen retreat, you received, did you, did you realize rikpa? <laughs> You're going to be so embarrassed. Eight weeks they said, well, what were you doing? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> what the hell did you go there for? Don't quite know. <laughs> so, I think today is a day to be a loser. Don't wait. Don't wait, you know, don't put it off. Today is a day, day to be the loser. Lose all your hopes. Lose all your fears, lose all your activity, all the the latching onto and abandonment, all the striving and effort to be a loser totally today. Okay, be one hundred percent loser, with then nothing to lose because you've lost everything, which means you've given away everything. Well, then you're a Dzogchen practitioner. Okay, good. Now I get to be quiet for twenty-four minutes.
Tommaso. <coughs> so a few questions have accumulated here, so I'll respond. So when we started with the pointing out instructions, you cited Papmasambhava saying in some appearances in the mind will merge. Later on, you said, if your attention is fixed on any object in the present, either sensory or mental, that's not the practice. Good. So this means that appearances are not sense objects? Or does this merging process start with sense objects, and once the mind has merged with them, you can't speak of them anymore as being perceived objects? The latter is pretty good phrasing. Pretty good phrasing. Um, I've mentioned many times, as, as we find in the text, uh, this whole theme of um, reifying, grasping onto the inherent, inherent existence of anything at all, our thoughts, bod body, a sensory object, and so forth. There's another phrase that comes up in, uh, just incredibly frequently in the Dzogchen literature. It's called nyinzin, or dualistic grasping. Dualistic grasping. And it's simply a manifestation or an aspect of this reification or grasping onto true existence. But what it implies is kind of the full package. And that is, as I'm, for example, gazing over Dakmar, there's an appearance of her as being over there, about maybe three, five meters away. And she appears to be over there. And then if she, if she speaks, and I'll hear the voice coming from over there. I'm, just, I'm saying the obvious. Uh, and then I have a sense that I'm viewing her from over here. And that's how the appearances are. And the appearances are that way in a waking state, in a non-lucid dream, and in a lucid dream. It's still there. And so the difference between a non-lucid... If, if you had a dream of Dakmar sitting over there five meters away, the difference between uh, a non-lucid dream and a lucid dream, uh, having that little experience, Dakmar sitting five meters away, uh, would be that in a lucid dream, you think she's really over there. She's really over there. There's somebody over there. Her name is Dakmar. She's, she's somebody else. And, you, and then she could make me afraid or make me desire something, maybe hold up a, 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 hold up a dollar bill, and I go, <laughs> a dollar bill? Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. <laughs> you know? But whenever, the point being that uh, in the non-lucid dream, you think that she's over there, and whatever she's doing, she's really doing it. Maybe she's a threat. Maybe she's giving me something I want, what have you, but that's it. And, the, and that's the end of the story. And then we react you know, according to that. Whereas the same event, seeing Dakmar over there in a lucid dream, she still seems to be over there. The appearance is the same. And moreover, in a lucid dream, if I walked over and tapped her on the shoulder, it would feel just like it would in a non-lucid dream. And it would feel hard, bony. That's what shoulders feel like generally, right? But in a lucid dream, of course, you know, although she appears to be over there, Although I appear to be walking over there, I'm actually not moving through space at all. And when I reach out with my illusory hand to touch her illusory shoulder, there will arise a sensation of solidity. But that's not because there's anything there. It's just how dreams work. You know? And so the dualistic grasping in the daytime is the same. And Arya, an Arya Bodhisattva, or for that matter, Vidyadhara, having realized emptiness, in the case of Vidyadhara, having realized Rikpa and emptiness, and the Arya Bodhisattva has realized emptiness but not Rikpa, and therefore when realizing emptiness is realizing it with subtle mind, but not realizing emptiness with Rikpa. That's the difference. 
fundamental difference between an Arya Bodhisattva, who's of course imbued with bodhicitta, realizing emptiness, the emptiness that the Arya Bodhisattva realizes and that the Vidyadara realizes, the same emptiness, but one is realizing with Rikpa, the other one's realizing with the subtle mind. Right? So for either one, though, they've realized emptiness. That's a big deal. They've realized emptiness. And so the Arya Bodhisattva coming out of meditative equipoise in which the person was realizing emptiness then sees all phenomena still appearing as if from their own side. It's like, gosh, I thought you would have gone away, gone away by now, but they don't. This is, by the, by the way, this is called cognitive obscuration. The Chneya Avarana. It's a, it's a manifestation of cognitive obscuration that even after you realized emptiness, phenomena still appear to be from their own side. But the deal is, you know they're not. You know they don't exist from their own side, even though they appear that way. Right? Now, the Vidyadara, what does the Vidyadara have over the Arya Bodhisattva? The Vidyadara comes out of realization of Rikpa, excuse me, realization of emptiness, but realizing with Rikpa. But the Vidyadara, coming out and viewing phenomena, sees them, again, they appear to be from their own side, but knows they are not. But in addition, in addition, this is the big one, in addition, sees all these appearances as being effulgences or the creative expressions of Rikpa. The Arya Bodhisattva doesn't see that. The Arya Bodhisattva is not viewing them from the perspective of Rikpa, therefore simply sees them as manifestations of karma, coming up, coming up. There's some phrases I remember even 40 years later because they're so short. Dembatona pemba me. Dembatona pemba me. So easy, yeah? Dembatona, if you see the truth, and the truth is ultimate truth, you, if you see emptiness directly, non-conceptually, pembamet. Now you're an Arya Bodhisattva. From this point on, there's no more propulsive karma for you. You're not accumulating any more propulsive karma. You'll engage in all kinds of activities, but you won't engage with them. Now that you've seen how things are, you won't engage with them in any activity with a sense that of the reification of self, the reification of other, and then interacting as such. That's where pro- pro- propulsive karma, pembele, that's where propulsive karma comes from, of reifying and even virtuous. You know, I see somebody would like a, you know, a clock, or oh, somebody's desperate need of a clock. Oh, oh you'd like a clock? Sure, have this one. Um, you know, I'll, I'll pay for it. I'm sure they won't mind. I'll pay for it. Now you can have it. That's nice if you really needed it. But as long as I'm reifying myself and reifying the person I'm giving to, it's called tainted karma. It's tainted karma. There's no strings attached. I didn't want something in, in, in return. It was just like, I just want, want to do something nice. That's very nice. It's not tainted with attachment, like now, where, you know, what are you going to do for me? But it's tainted by reification, reification of delusion. Whereas an Arya Bodhisattva doesn't do that. Because the Arya Bodhisattva actually knows definitively that the person who appears over there is not existing over there from his or her own side. But as long as we're still enmeshed in this thoroughly non-lucid dream that we call waking reality, then we're reifying ourselves, I'm really over here, and you're really over there, and this is dualistic grasping. Okay? Because you're really over there. So now it's grasping onto the absolute polarity or duality. You're over there, and you're separate from me. You're independent from me. And I'm over here, and I'm independent from you, but nevertheless, let's be nice. You know? And then it's tainted virtue. Or let's not be nice. And then we have negative karma. So when the mind merges, it's not saying that your mind goes, 
you know, and, and sludges over into the, it's the duality's gone. The sense of duality's gone. Right? So that's what the merging is. The duality's gone. It's stated in two different levels. This happens so frequently. It's stated in the teachings on shamatha and the substrate consciousness. That the substrate consciousness illuminates all appearances, which it does in the, in the dream state and the waking state. The appearances you have, what are they illuminated by? You know, the temporary, you know, the samsaric light bulb, the samsaric light bulb, the ground of your samsara, substrate consciousness. So it said that the substrate consciousness, which is the very nature of luminosity, it makes manifest all appearances, even intangible appearances, like a sense of justice. Oh, justice was done. Good. Justice was done. Well, what illuminated that sense that that was justice? It's totally intangible, right? But it's substrate consciousness. So substrate consciousness illuminates mathematical formulas, laws of nature, colors, and emotions, and memories, and so forth. And so it's said now, though, that the substrate consciousness illuminates all appearances but not, does not enter into them. Illuminates all appearances but does not enter into them. How does awareness enter into appearances? Every time you have a wandering, a wandering mind, the little doggy of your awareness is being dragged by the car of your wandering thought. And your awareness has merged with that thought. And your attention is now focused on the referent of the thought. And that's emerging. That's emerging. It's involuntary, semi-conscious, and delusional. Every time you have a lucid, a non-lucid dream, you're merging, your, your awareness is merging with your sense of identity of the person in the dream. You think this is who you really are. This is your body. This is your mind. You've merged. And that merging is where the delusion is. And then having merged with this person in the dream, then I'm seeing that person over there, and then we're, we're totally separate. And the odd thing, I mean, I, I continually find this so incredibly odd, is that whether the dream is non-lucid or lucid, Unless in, a, in an, a lucid dream, you go into manual override and you really said, okay, I'm lucid, I'm going to turn Dagmar into a, a ballerina and she's going she's to pirouette. Could do that, but of course it's not Dagmar, it's just an appearance. But if you don't do that, if you don't really said, okay, now I'm going to do a trip here, and turn it into a turnip or a ballerina, or what, if you're not doing that, if you just let, let, let things go and... You run an experiment, like you're lucid, right? Like in my second lucid dream, my famous second lucid dream in the diner. If I walked over and having, if, if we're having a lucid, if I were having a lucid dream right now, and I walked over to Dagmar and said, Dagmar, you know this is a dream. I don't know what she's going to say. It's my dream. There's only one stream of consciousness here. It's not two coming together. There's not a psychic dream. D d d d d and not that. It's just, it's just a dream. It's my dream all coming from my substrate, and I am lucid, and I still don't know what she's going to say. I just find that very weird, interesting and weird. You don't know how things are going to turn out. You can take over if you wish, and then you can really, you can direct it as you wish. But if you don't, it really seems like Dogma's another person. Independent. And that would go for 40 people in a room. 
If I interviewed you, do you know this is a dream? You know, do you know not? I have no idea what the poll is going to turn out. It's going to be a poll. I'll get the answer at the end of the poll. Okay, 37 people said this, 40, you know, whatever. I find that really quite extraordinary. So that's on the relative level. I'm giving you a long, elaborated, blah, blah, blah answer. But that's on the relative level. But then the same thing is said. That all appearances are displays, creative expressions, rikbetzel, the creative expressions, the displays of rikpa, or the rupa, the play, the play of lila, I think it is in Sanskrit, lila, the play of rikpa, the creative displays of rikpa, the effulgence of, of rikpa, creative expressions of rikpa, on the one hand. On the other hand, And there's a non-duality. There's no, it's not rikpa over here and then the creative display there. But on the other hand, Rinpoche said if you, Gyatso Rinpoche, I remember years ago, he said if you realize rikpa, you realize the displays of rikpa. But if you realize just appearances, if you realize simply the nature of appearances, that doesn't mean you've necessarily realized rikpa. There's an asymmetry there. Realize rikpa, then you'll realize the displays as rikpa. But if you simply realize appearances, oh, that's, that's a red appearance, that's a brown appearance, that's this appearance, that's appearance, that doesn't give you realize rikpa. So in some meaningful sense of the term there, rikpa doesn't enter into, doesn't get, there's the word, dong mepa. Rikpa doesn't come or go. Right? Rikpa doesn't come or go. Remember the eight, eight conceptual elaborations. It doesn't come or go. Therefore, rikpa doesn't go out over to, to the appearance of dakmar. It doesn't go. And it doesn't come. Right. So in that way, Rikpa doesn't go out and merge with objects. So there is a point, again, again where somebody has stopped talking because words will fail, but that's exactly where your practice starts. And then you just go into the practice and then you see for yourself and then you can talk about it from your own experience. So thank you for a very good question. So here's a hypothetical. If Daniel Dennett were to go to the Valley of Rainbows and take some pictures with his brain be in states corresponding to the perception of rainbows, and moreover, what would uh, Michio Kaku, what would his perception of the photos be like? What about a pure-minded person who has never heard of this phenomenon? Boy, that's an easy question to answer. It's actually very, very easy. And it's definitive and beyond debate. You probably know what's coming. Yeah? I don't know. I don't know. The brain state, I'd have to ask Amy or other people who really, I think Martin might know better than I. But we don't know. Uh, when I read the question, because I read it before, I read of a book I read 44 years ago uh, called The Way of the White Clouds by Lama Anagarika Govinda. He was the first Westerner I ever read about that called himself Lama. He gave me the creeps. He said, you're a German. What do you call yourself a Lama for? You're German. How can you be a German Lama? <laughs> it took me a few decades to get over that one. But in any case, he was a very, very interesting man. And I just, uh, I think I mentioned a few days ago, I met a person who was a disciple of his years ago and actually saved his life. Because he was up in Dererdun, and he had a heart attack. And this, this man that I met, he's, he's my age, just three, two, three months younger than I, uh, he carried him on his back down and then put him in his car and drove to Delhi and saved his life. Yeah, it's quite interesting. But in any case, Lama Anagarika, a very interesting person, and very fine scholar, and one of the great pioneers. There was Evans Wentz, there was Alexander David Neal, um, there was Lama Anagarika Govinda, and not many others, really, of that generation. It would be really my parents' generation, 
or even a bit earlier than that. Um, in any case, he wrote about his guru, who, when I read, this was the first Lama I really had faith in, because I didn't know anything, and there were, there were hardly any books about Tibetan Buddhism in 1970, right? Hardly any that were worth anything at all. Losan Ramba's rubbish. That is his books. I don't know him as a person, but his books are rubbish. But these books were they're not bad. I mean, especially considering, boy, they were the first ones. You know. And so Lama Anagarika Govinda wrote about his guru, uh, who was a Gulupa Geshe. So he finished his whole training as a Gulupa. And then he went off for 12 years in solitary retreat, way, way, way up high. Uh, and he didn't even come down for supplies. So people wondered, how is he if he's living up there? Rumor had it, and that's all I take it to be rumor, because who knows that he was living on the, it's probably poetry, he lived on the milk of snow lions. <laughs> I like the idea. But in any case, he wasn't coming down for food. Nobody knew he was there. Way down in the valley, there were villages. There usually are in the valleys in Tibet. Nobody knew he was there. So he was in total solitude. He might have been living on Chulin. That's a real possibility. And that's its flower essence, Julen, where you, by the power of your meditation, you empower uh, just dried petals, or not petals, yeah, petals of flowers, mix them with a little bit, and then you just eat those. And uh, you can live on those for months or years. And one of my own teachers did. That's not a rumor, a myth, or superstition. One of my teachers lived on it for a long time. Again, Chambawandu, he accomplished it. Yeah, so, in any case, but one way or another, he was up there, so Tomageshi Rinpoche, uh, I guess it's storytelling time, isn't it? And uh, and then, after 12 years or so, there was some herder from the valley, valley way below. And I'm remembering this 44 years ago, so f- forgive me if my memory is a bit faulty. But herder lost one of his yaks or his livestock, and he went way up looking for him. And then he um, oh, he heard a damaru, the hand drum, and probably a hand drum and bell. And he freaked out because there there really wasn't supposed to be anybody up there not without knowing about it. You know. And so he heard that, and he thought it was a, a, a demon or a spirit or something. So he kind of freaked out. So he hid, and then he, he kind of crept up, because he was really curious at the same time, like, what's making that noise? It's kind of like, that's really so weird. And he got closer, and then he saw this yogi, you know, with his... And then he said, oh, if he's a yogi, then he's got to be a holy yogi. He's got to be a sublime yogi. Otherwise, we would have known about him in the nearest village. Right? So he ran back to the village and said, there's a yogi up there, there's a yogi up there. <laughs> and the villagers, let's go get him. <laughs> so they, and that was the end of his retreat. <laughs> so everything worked out. But I'm leading, it's a nice story, that's why I'm telling it. It's all true. I mean, I have no reason to doubt it. And Lama Govinda, a very, very fine man, excellent scholar. He was a Theravada monk. And then he migrated from Theravada Buddhism over to Tibetan Buddhism. He visited Tibet. He was quite an interesting artist and a good writer and a good scholar. Um, so Tome Geshe Rinpoche then came out of his retreat after 12 years, and he was a siddha. He was uh, an accomplished being with extraordinary abilities. And one of the stories that Lama Govinda told really moved me when I read it, was that uh, they were out on some... He would, by this time, he was also really speaking a lot about Maitreya and looking to the future, looking to the future, big deal. And so he quickly, and he's a great adept, a great teacher, accomplished master. So naturally, Tibetans are they're pretty much all devout. I mean, really, the great majority are really very... I don't want to be idealistic, but there are many. Well, he had a, a large 
you know, assembly of people as he was on traveling pilgrimage or something. And they got out to one of those vast plains that you find in South of Tibet, which is vast sky, snow-capped peaks. There are a lot of places like that. And they were out there, they encamped. And then the uh, Lama Govinda, excuse me, the uh, Toma Geshe Rinpoche, then went into meditation. And he displayed, people reported, he, he displayed then his samadhi on the sky. And they just, the people in the, in his entourage, people who are traveling with him, his disciples and so forth and so on, I think it was many scores or perhaps hundreds, they looked up in the sky and they're just seeing this whole mandala of deities, Dakinis and Bodhisattvas and Yidams and Buddhas, all displayed like your best possible visualization. And they're just seeing it with their eyes. You know? um, but what was interesting there is they didn't all see the same thing. So there was a lot of commonality. But some saw more and some saw less. You know? And I don't know if there's anybody who didn't see anything at all, but a lot of people saw just a, a miraculous display. And some saw much, much more detail, some saw less detail. So, um, so now it's time for people, especially on pod, uh, podcasts, to fact check. How's my 44-year-old memory? <laughs> I don't really know, but that's my memory. Uh, but it certainly stayed with me. And his death was quite spectacular too, but I won't go into that right now. So here's this Lama, an extraordinary Lama. And he's passing away. And, and the villagers, it didn't say a whole bunch of yogis with pure vision were coming. It was villagers from all over the place, you know, just Nepalese and Tibetans and so forth. So they're seeing this. It's clearly, it's a, consent, a kind of intersubjective experience. But if a, um, you know, a real skeptic, a very hardcore materialist, Daniel Dennett is a self-avowed, hardcore materialist. That's not pejorative. Uh, if a person like that were to come and be deeply skeptical, would they see it too? And, would, and if they saw the rainbows, would it be the same brain states as if they saw an ordinary rainbow? I have no idea. I don't know. Would some see more and some see less? I don't know. Uh, I do find it remarkable that you know these are not unusual stories. I mean, unusual, not very, really, not very unusual. Penor Mitchell passed, passed away just a few years ago. Something similar happened there. Um, and then right there in Madison, Geshe uh, Zubba spent seven years in Tuktam. Uh, did anybody hear whether any scientist showed up? Richard Davidson is like, what, five miles away? Did anybody hear? Am I, am I impression? We probably would have heard about it. Yeah. You don't think he was here? Yeah. I mean, Richie, Richie is interested, that's for sure. And I don't mean pejorative to anybody. But um, when an, uh, we'll talk about this a bit later, but when anomalous appearances arise, events arise, um, it's interesting how often, I'll just put it this way, when anomalous, that's anomalous, right? A, a room filled with rainbows? That really shouldn't happen, you know? Um, or rainbows filling a whole valley and persisting and persisting. That's something that is not a natural phenomenon. Um, it is interesting that how often, so however so often, that goes unnoticed in the broader spectrum. Mainstream scientists, the media, and so forth, and so on, and so on. It just goes unnoticed. Um, so that's an interesting point. Um, I had an experience a little bit like that. Um, when I visited Sertar, and Sertar was the place where Dujum Lingba settled and created his settle and taught Dharma. That was he never created a monastery. He wasn't a monk, but he settled there. He settled there, and I learned this just recently. 
um, Sertar is where Kembajibme Pinso put up his little sign, metaphorically, Lama ready to teach, and then it grew to 10,000, went down to 3,000, now it's up to 40,000. That place, that's Sertar. It's in Golok in eastern Tibet. And um, so I was very eager to visit there, and I, and I went to the town of Sertar about 10 years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago. Uh, with my stepdaughter, Sarah, and another friend. And we made our way there to the village. And so I, uh, I have this extremely vivid memory, and I have photo. Uh, what Sarah said, I don't, I don't know what a friend was doing. I don't think she was with it. It was an elderly woman, an old friend of mine. I think she, she wasn't there. But Sarah and I saw this. We got to the village. We're not allowed to go to the monastery because the government had recently bulldozed it. You know, just bulldoze 7,000 dwellings, dwellings for 7,000 monks. Just <laughs> um, they, and they told all these 7,000 monks, get lost, you know, go away, freaking them out, you know. Uh, and, but then they, the Chinese didn't want any Westerners to see it, because that's kind of like embarrassing. And so we were not allowed to go. So we're in the village, and the monastery's right over there, but we're not allowed to go. So Sarah and I were hanging out in the village, and it was one of those crystal clear Tibetan days where the, 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 the sky is just radiantly blue. And it was, I remember it was about, it was, it was noon. The sun was very high in the sky. And, uh, and I saw something I think I've seen maybe once or maybe twice earlier in my life, and I'm 64. Uh, and it's a not common, but not terribly uncommon event. Some of you have probably seen it. You look up at the sun, and there's a rainbow all the way around the sun. Okay? It's a known it's a known phenomenon. I'm sure the scientists have some intelligible explanation for it. I don't doubt. Uh, it's not supernatural. I mean, it does happen. Uh, well, we saw that, which was kind of, it's cool. I mean, it was really, and, and it was a cloudless sky. There are no clouds at all. And it's, it's 12, 13,000 feet. It's very, very dry. No clouds in the sky. And then this perfect big rainbow all the way around the sun. That was interesting, but that's not what, that, if that's it, I wouldn't mention it. So, that happens. But the other part was odd. And that is, you had, we had looked up in the sky and there was a circle there. It was a big circle. But then there was another circle. And it was white. And it was about the same size. And the, it was two circles. And the edge of one circle went right through the center of the other circle. So they're like that. And so it was a white circle intersecting the rainbow circle with the, with the right circle going right through the center of the rainbow circle. I've never heard about that one. It kind of really looked like male, female, yap, yum, you know, the red and the white, or the rainbow and then the white. Uh, and it lasted a long time, and then Sarah photographed it, and we have a photograph of it. And it's quite moving. And I often wondered, for years and years I wondered, whether some great lama had passed away about that time. And I heard that there was one, but apparently not there. Um, so it's just an anomaly, simply an anomaly. Um, and then I was speaking with Lama Chunam just a couple of weeks ago, a few, few weeks ago, when I visited Gyatradamachi. And Lama, Sun, uh, Lama, Sun, uh, Lama Chunam, who's Sangye Kando's husband, very fine, very fine, uh, youngish lama, younger than I am, uh, from Tibet, uh, I told him, and he said, I asked him, do you think, you know, was there some great lama that passed away? That was, that was you know, 10 years ago and so forth. 
And he said, no, I think it's probably because you have a strong connection with that place. And by the way, that's a place of Dujum Lingba. Let me be very happy. You know, there's some connection. I think there must be. I've just translated all of his works on Dzogchen. So it, some indication of maybe some faith. Or maybe I had some connection past life. It would be kind of odd if I didn't. Um, I think I might have been a dog, maybe. You know, maybe his upso. You know, I bark a lot. A number of you notice that. I do bark a lot. So maybe I was his, his, his dog. <laughs> I don't know. But a connection with the place, the Lama, that I'm very happy for. So that's all. So see you tomorrow morning. Enjoy your practice.